There was a mayoral debate Monday night that we'll be talking about today on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with the full house of my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, <clears throat> and Lisa Garvin, all raring to go to have an exciting conversation. Welcome back, Laura. Glad you had a good weather on your day off. Yeah, it was beautiful. Beautiful fall day in Northeast Ohio. Yeah, it feels like we're getting paid back for the wet summer with just the <laughs> wonderful fall. Hope it continues for the foreseeable future. Let's begin. Why won't the Cleveland Clinic and university hospitals perform organ transplants for anyone who was not vaccinated against the coronavirus? Lisa Garvin, this works both ways. It's both for the donor and the recipient. If they're not both vaccinated, no go on the transplant. Well, this is not like brain surgery. I mean, when you get somebody else's organ, your body is going to fight against that organ for its entire life. So basically, if you're getting a transplant, they have to kill your immune system to put that organ in. And then that patient is on, you know, anti-rejection drugs for the rest of their life. So, of course, you don't want anybody who might be infected, who is unvaccinated, either as a donor or a patient. So both UH and Cleveland Clinic Hospitals have said that they are not doing any transplants for patients who are unvaccinated or for living donors or who are unvaccinated. I mean, this ups their risk of dying um, by like 30%. I mean, it's pretty crazy. So yeah, I mean, this is standard operating procedure. They're not allowed to drink or smoke before their surgery. They have to take other vaccinations just to make sure that their compromised immune system can, you know, fight off disease. So yeah, not rocket science here. Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a surprise. I mean, I guess it's not a surprise. It's just this kind of came out of nowhere. We we heard of one place last week elsewhere in the nation that was doing this. And then without really announcing it, the clinic in UH got on the same bandwagon and said, look, this is for patient safety. If you aren't vaccinated and you're and you're taking these drugs, your chances of getting the coronavirus go off the charts which which makes it very difficult to to continue with the transplant. So uh, they the clinic says it has not canceled any yet. But but for for anybody that doesn't have the vaccination by November 1st, they're going to come off the list that they right. won't keep them on the list and somebody else will move up. Um, and there, there is it, a national. It, it, when you, go ahead. Go ahead. No, there is a national trend, though. There are, there are other hospitals, as you mentioned, that are either demoting them down the list or removing them from the waiting list altogether. And currently, there's over 100,000 people on waiting lists for various organs. I don't know why, if you were in this realm, you would not be getting the shot just for your own safety. Right. Whether you're a donor or a recipient, your bot, you're making your body vulnerable. So why wouldn't you do everything you could to protect it? But, you know, so many people have read the Facebook nonsense about the dangers of the shot and believed it, that they're convinced that getting the shot will jeopardize them. It's it's a sad state of affairs. Anyway, interesting move by the Cleveland Clinic and UH. I wonder if they'll apply this to any other kinds of surgery. We'll have to see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What were the highlights, or were there any highlights, in the debate Monday night between Kevin Kelly and Justin Bibb, the candidates for Cleveland mayor? Leila Tassi, there's lots and lots of forums and places where people get together. This is one of the formal debates. It's done by IdeaStream and the City Club. Did much happen? Uh, this <laughs> this was actually a pretty boring event. It was pretty heavy on the platitudes and, and light on substance. 
we all predict it. Kevin Kelly painted himself as the elder statesman with with all the right kinds of experience who would be ready to lead the city on day one. And he and he went after Justin Bibb for his youth and, and inexperience, to which Bibb responded by pointing out that Kelly is a seasoned member of the status quo who does the bidding of the establishment and is out of touch with the needs of real people. So this was all kind of predictable based on what we've seen so far. Kelly had the opportunity to land a blow on Bibb for his support of issue 24. That's that's the proposed charter amendment that would create a civilian board overseeing the police department. The issue has been panned by many as as so deeply flawed, it would almost certainly end up in the courts. Critics have argued that it gives way too much power to a panel of civilians who aren't elected or accountable to voters and, and that it can't be undone without passing another charter amendment. But Kelly kind of flubbed his chance to make that a defining issue in the mayor's race, I think. He, he could have really used it as evidence that perhaps Bibb is too young and naive to know that this is bad policy. But instead, you know, Kelly's talking points came across as more of a campaign against issue 24 than against Bibb himself. And then Bibb's counter argument to all of that was that Kevin Kelly just doesn't believe in democracy, <laughs> that he he wants to take the decision about issue 24 out of the hands of the people just as he wanted to undermine the referendum on the public-private deal to renovate the queue. So, you know, all in all, it wasn't the most exciting debate, but voters who who managed to tear themselves away from Monday Night Football to tune in were rewarded with maybe a little insight into how these campaigns are going to play out for the next few weeks. Look, the the issue is is probably the biggest vulnerability for Justin Bibb, but I don't think it's that big a vulnerability. Because it, it very likely could pass. People are fed up with the status quo. Of course, yeah. So they want change no matter what change is. And I think... That's what Bib is tapping into. It, it, it it's not a good law. It's a bad law. It'll get wrapped up in the courts, and it'll it's in conflict with so many other parts of the law that it won't stand. And I think Bib is thinking while it's wrapped up in the courts, we could do stuff to fix it and go back before the voters to make it a better a better law. And I, I think Kevin Kelly has to be careful about how hard he pushes against it because there is a groundswell of support. People are unhappy with the way things are. I am a little bit surprised that Bibb didn't take on Kelly firmly for the missteps he's made of late, you know, jamming through a $20 million set aside for broadband with no real plan, fumbling terribly when his colleagues go around him to call their own meeting to deal with spending stimulus money. And instead of embracing that and being their leader, kind of giving them a 40 minute harangue and leaving. Um, that 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 is a lack of leadership. And I'm surprised Bib didn't say he keeps telling you he's a great leader. Let's look at what he's done lately. Is that the kind of mayor we want? I'm, I'm, I'm just I thought that would come because it's a the volleyball's up in the air. All he has to do is spike it. I guess he hasn't been going totally negative, but he did attack him for status quo. So why do you think he didn't bring that stuff up? I don't know. That's a great point. And I actually had not thought of that last night. Um, but you're right. Those those were he could have seized upon those moments. Maybe, you know, Justin Bibb, this is he he's maybe he's just warming up. You know, it's hard to it's hard to get into the groove. This is he's just starting out in his career in politics. And 
and uh, debating is hard. So I don't know. We'll see. Is there another one of these coming up? I don't. Must I don't think so. Look, it's it, not right? a debate. It's a question where you get talking points. If, if we wanted to have a debate, we would let the candidates ask each other the questions. You know, <laughs> Justin Bibb can ask Kevin Kelly, oh. "What were you thinking when you didn't embrace <laughs> your colleagues and you harangued them for forty minutes?" Is that leadership? Kelly would respond. Bibb could then rebut. Then Kelly can come back and say, "What are you thinking? Getting behind a law that is so clearly in conflict that'll." be gummed up in the courts, wouldn't leadership be saying, look, I get what you feel, but don't vote for this. This is bad for the city. And Bib would respond and Kelly could rebut. Getting the tenor of their questions would be interesting because of how they, they phrase them. But instead, it's talking point after talking point after talking point, and it's just kind of dreadful. Right. Right. And then it turns into, you know, do you want the leader who's ready on day one, who has all the right experience versus, you know, are you ready for change? You know, that's always what it boils down to. (laughs) And that's what this was. Well, I I do think that that Kelly had the most to gain from a good performance. He's got so little of a path, if any path, to win this thing. Justin Bibb is clearly in the driver's seat. And so I, I I would have thought that Kelly would have tried to use this to really land some blows, and he didn't. And I don't know, maybe maybe he recognizes that the path is closed. Anyway, I uh, what do we have? Four weeks, less than four weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Till till mm-hmm. voting day. So this will end, and we'll know who the next mayor is. You're listening to this week in the CLE. We have a whole bunch of reasons floating in the atmosphere about why exactly Southwest Airlines has been canceling and delaying thousands of flights, including some in Cleveland. Laura Johnston, which ones do we believe? I don't really want to believe weather because I don't know where the weather is, but Southwest says it's weather, limited staffing, and air traffic control issues, and that was responsible for dropping or postponing about 2,000 flights over the weekend. So... Limited staffing to me seems like the most believable when we talk about all the shortages we're having everywhere. Um, the air traffic control people, I mean, there weren't there weren't issues with other airlines. Same with the weather. So they flew unimpe- unimpeded. Some people are claiming the pilots and flight attendants are revolting against a vaccine man- mandate. On Friday, the union had asked a federal court to stop that push to get all employees vaccinated. But the union says it's not about the vaccine and they blame Southwest's poor planning. Yeah, although employees of Southwest are whispering to friends of theirs that it is a protest against the vaccine mandate. People are calling off sick. Southwest says no. To say it was air traffic control, that was ridiculous because no other airlines had any problems. And so that's out. And to say weather, no other airlines had any problems. So that's out. I feel like that's just like the default, like because they can't be blamed for weather and you can't have to, you know, give people overnight stays if they cancel their flights because of weather. So it's always like, it's just weather. Like it's just a non thing. So then why not just tell the truth? I mean, if, if it is staff staying home because they're mad, say it. I mean, what, what it, 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 you're trying to keep your passengers safe by getting your staff vaccinated. That's a good thing. And you've got some staff members that are staying home because they disagree with it. I, I just, I hate when we get the, the, explanations that just don't make sense and their explanations don't make any sense it continued yesterday they were still delaying and canceling flights yesterday it'll be interesting to see if they come out of it anytime soon or if this continues can well, i you wonder 
Yeah, go ahead, Layla. I, just, Layla yeah, I was just wondering if, you know, I, I was under the impression that if it's weather, they don't necessarily refund you for your ticket. Right. And they don't have to put you up in a hotel and they don't have to right. do anything. But if it's they something just, like, that's their fault, sit. yeah, right. if they cause the delay, then it's a different story. But you can't lie. You can't say it's weather when it's not weather. Oh, you I mean, think they don't? <laughs> yeah, that's a, 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 the whole airline industry ever since 9-11. They've just become abusive to their passengers. It used to be so nice to fly. And now it's just you feel like you're you're a prisoner in the plane. Well, it is interesting because for so long, no one was flying. Right. People weren't going anywhere because of the pandemic. And I mean, there were furloughs and people were laid off. And you wonder if it's got the same issue as the hospital industry. Right. People just found other jobs and they didn't want to come back. And now that everybody wants to travel and there's pent up demand, they just can't meet it. I mean, Spirit had that day, I think it was in August, where they were canceling left and right. And so this is not just a Southwest problem. Right. I just wish they would tell the truth when they have these problems, because it's we have a story up that if you read, you're scratching your head going, well, I don't know which reason to believe. So I don't know if I trust Southwest. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How long has it taken Ohio legislators to get serious about letting people put cameras in the rooms of relatives in nursing nursing homes, both to communicate with them and to make sure they are not abused? Lisa Garvin, what struck me about this is why it takes a law to make this happen. Why would nursing homes fight having people be able to see their relatives in their rooms other than because they know their staff is abusing them. It, I just, it's odd to me that, that it's going to take an Ohio law to make this happen. This, this is 10 years in the making. This, the law, which is Senate Bill 58, Esther's law, was named for Esther Pisker. And in 2011, her family put a camera in her nursing room, nursing home room here in Cleveland. And it led to the convictions of a couple of nurses. They were like throwing her into the wheelchair and throwing her on the bed. And her son, put a camera in the room, but nursing home employees said that that was a privacy violation and they were covering the camera. So he installed the hidden camera and that's when he discovered the abuse of his mother. So uh, this law was, went through the Senate unanimously. Um, the law does state that the camera installation and maintenance costs are paid by either the resident, their guardian, family members, or their attorney, and they have to pay for Wi-Fi if there's no re free Wi-Fi in the nursing home. But this started with COVID because people were not allowed to see their relatives in nursing homes. They came, became, you know, concerned about the care of their relatives while they couldn't get a look at them. So I, I think even though it started back in 2011, you know, I think COVID kind of kicked it into overdrive. So I, I, I can't imagine this won't sail through the house. They've already had uh, meetings on it. They've got like a third hearing coming up uh, later this week. So we'll see. But yeah, yeah. I just would have thought I would have thought that during COVID, when you weren't allowed into the nursing home to see your relative and people were sitting outside looking through windows, that would have been the time to, to say, look, we're going to put cameras in all the rooms. We're going to have engagement with them because they're stuck in their rooms. And I, it, it's odd to me that this didn't happen naturally. And, and it just makes me wonder, is the nursing home industry and lobby that powerful that to avoid liability for when their staff misbehaves and does bad things, they kept the cameras out. It, it, it just shouldn't take a law to make right. something so common sense happen. But that's what it's going to take, although it's taken a long time to get here. Yeah, I, I just think that, you know, there are 
privacy concerns. I get that. But, you know, when you're talking about the care of a loved one and you're not there 24 hours a day to see what's happening, the resident doesn't always report it. You know, this woman, Esther Pisker, had dementia, you know, so she maybe was not aware of what was going on. So, yeah, I just... I, I, I'm just. Well, and if the staff knows that they're always on camera, then then it's not really a privacy issue. They know when they're at work, they're on camera, and and it probably would encourage better and sunnier behavior. It's a it's a good thing they're moving on it. I just it it's one that it's it's I, the nursing homes should have done it on their own, mm-hmm. but I guess they worry about the lawsuits. So this week for in the CLE. What are Case Western Reserve University and University Hospitals going to do with an $18 million plus grant they're getting from the National Institutes of Health for a heart study? Lila Tassi, it's nice that this will be based in Cleveland and Detroit, where we have so many people in poverty that are facing uh, hard health issues. Yes, and I think this is a this is a very sizable federal grant. The university's School of Medicine and, and University Hospitals, Harrington Heart and Vascular Institute, received this eighteen point two million dollar grant to lead an effort to address cardiovascular health disparities and social determinants of health in the Black communities in Cleveland and Detroit. And the initiative also involves not just Case and UH, but Wayne State University in Detroit. And it's based on the premise that there are big disparities in healthcare access for Black Americans that lead to disproportionately poor outcomes. And the goal is is to reduce cardiovascular complications and hospitalizations by improving things like blood pressure, lipids, glucose targets for Black patients who are at, at high risk for poor heart health. And what I thought was really interesting about this is that the Cuyahoga Metropolitan Housing Authority is going to be a part of this, too, that they're going to help coordinate health events at Cleveland Housing Projects to identify patients affected by social determinants of health. And the federal grant is going to pay for nurses and community health workers and care coordinators to provide free screenings and and other services at CMHA sites. So um, I, a great partnership way to, you know, a great way to bring together a lot of, uh, a lot of the, the, you know, pl- you know, the agencies that, that touch upon the lives of, of, uh, of this target population. Well, we've talked a lot in recent years about how where you live is a determinant of how long you live, that zip codes imply life expectancy. And it all comes back to what it always comes back to, poverty. But to to focus in, drill in on the specific uh, illnesses and ailments that lead to the the early uh, cardiac problems, it's a great thing. It's interesting to be partnered up with Detroit. Cleveland and Detroit do have a lot in common. Detroit's like a bigger version of Cleveland. um, And Wayne State University is part of this, too. Uh, it, it's nice to see the Midwest getting getting some of this. It's odd, don't you think, that it's UH and not the clinic when it comes to cardio problems? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, the clinic is largely seen as the leader, but, uh, you know, university hospitals, um, you know, they do a lot of research. So this this kind of plays right into their strength. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. About 20% of state employees work for leaders other than Governor Mike DeWine. How many of them are eligible for the $1,000 the governor has offered to employees who get the coronavirus vaccine? Laura Johnston, this was a surprising revelation yesterday that not a lot of them. Yeah, not a lot. The Supreme Court is 
is taking part in this, the Ohio Court of Claims, and the Legislative Service Commission. But most of the state agencies run by the independently elected officials are not participating. And that includes uh, folks who work for the Senate President Matt Huffman, House Speaker Bob Cup, the Secretary of State, Auditor, Treasurer, and Attorney General. They are not opting into this program that DeWine announced last month. And they're not exactly saying why they'd have to or why they are opting out. They would have to pay for it out of their existing budgets. It's not like they can just ask DeWine for it. But the a spokesman for the Ohio Senate Republican said he related it to the political argument about getting vaccinated, that it's a matter of individual choice. And I guess when you're saying we shouldn't have to make people get vaccinated, you're not going to offer your employees extra money to get vaccinated. And just to be clear, it's not like if you get vaccinated, you will automatically get $1,000. They start out with $100 and then it ramps up if on, on incentives, if every, you know, if, if tons of people in your department are getting vaccinated up to, um, if you get to 85%, you'll end up with $1,000. But see, there's a lot of peer pressure involved here. Look, I get Cup and Huffman. They've been wackadoos. They're way out on the fringes. But I'm a little bit surprised that people like Dave Yost and Keith Faber and Frank LaRose wouldn't embrace this to get their employees to be safe. And my bet is if it started to be a drag on their budget, they probably could go to Mike DeWine and say, hey, look, we're participating. Can you shake loose some of the reserves the state has to right to or for this i mean stimulus I, money right like I, you think that would be a use for it yeah i mean i you, dewine would work with them on that instead you've created two classes of state employees the haves and the have-nots and it just doesn't it doesn't make sense again i get it with cup and huffman because they they haven't been working in the public interest since they took their positions but the rest of these guys I, i'm surprised they're putting their employees in a bit of harm's way the idea that it's personal choice, right, it's personal choice, but incentives have been shown to get people to make that personal choice. So why not give them the incentive? It's not It's not working great, though, right now. As of October 2nd, about 37% of the total state workforce had received a vaccine and gotten this $100 incentive. And the goal is to get to 85% to get uh, the full $1,000 for each person. I mean, that's a, a huge jump. I don't I don't see them getting to that. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How are some leaders at Destination Cleveland and the Cleveland Foundation seeking to diversify the marketing of Cleveland beyond the well-known white historical figures like Rockefeller, Superman, and even Ralphie from A Christmas Story? Lisa Garvin, interesting story from Susan Glazer about trying to show a greater appeal of Cleveland across the lines of race. And there's a lot of interesting black history here in Cleveland that people just don't know about. The Cleveland Foundation and Destination Cleveland did a study on how Cleveland is promoted, and they, and they found that there's the usual suspects. There's the near west side, Tremont, Ohio City, uh, Hingetown, and then, of course, University Circle and downtown. But uh, they they as a result of the study, they wanted to do more neighborhood-based experiences so people can explore outside these usual tourist areas and get in touch with Black and Latino history in Cleveland. They want to attach that to the Cleveland brand and make Black and Latino stories part of the city storytelling. A lot of people don't know Ruby, Ruby D is from here, the famous actress and activist, the very first Black millionaire, Alonzo 
Alonzo Wright was here in Cleveland, and also the very famous poet Langston Hughes was from here. And if I could plug my grandfather for a little bit, my grandfather, Dr. Charles H. Garvin, was the first black man to build a house there on Wade Park back in the 30s, and it was bombed because of it. So, I mean, and that history used to come up every Black History Month for a long time. You know, when people would do Black History, they would talk about my grandfather, but that's kind of faded into the background. You know, so yeah. That was just your a- grandfather, Lisa? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I, oh, I have read about, about that story, and I, of course, Yes. Oh, wow. oh my God. I'm like stunned that that's your grandfather. I'd love to talk to you more about your family history. Wait, <laughs> and your grandfather was also the first black doctor in the army, right? That's correct. In World War One. Yeah. So, I mean, and like I said, you know, I thought that his, his history didn't really exist outside of, you know, our family. So I'm glad to hear that from Layla that you've wow. heard about him. So, and I've actually tried to push, I'd like to push to get a historical marker put in front of his house there on, on Wade Park Avenue. But uh, yeah, so I mean, but these are stories, these are buried stories that a lot of people don't know about. So Destination Cleveland and the Cleveland Foundation want to correct that. So they want, you know, they want League Park to be part of the story. They want to talk about Caramu House, the, old, the oldest black theater in the nation. You know, so I think this is a great move in, in the right. I mean, because Cleveland is like Detroit. It's a majority black city. We're not telling the stories of these residents who have lived here for generations. Yeah, it's, I mean, I hope they, they get the support to do this in a way that, that makes it a national tourist destination. Uh, the, the ideas they're talking about are, are pretty cool, and it would be interesting to see us get more attention for that. You could see travel writers coming to Cleveland to highlight it. I just want to jump in here, too. You know, years ago, Zach Reed, when he was a city councilman, made this a big issue, and it didn't really catch traction, but when he was trying to spur Mount Pleasant along in the direction of some kind of renaissance, one of his ideas was that, you know, this was once a mecca for middle-class Black families, and it was home to a whole bunch of Cleveland celebrities, Jim Brown, Arsenio Hall, and Carlin Lewis Stokes, and he wanted to put like Lisa was saying, you know, placards in front of those, you know, the historic markers in front of those sites. And he was kind of envisioning this arts and entertainment district that would capitalize on that folklore and and history. And, uh, you know, it just didn't didn't have its moment. And it's really exciting to see that that, uh, Destination Cleveland is taking up something similar. Check out Susan Glazer's story on cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Which Northeast Ohio counties rank among the top in Ohio for coronavirus vaccinations? Leila Tassi, we talked earlier about how state workers aren't getting vaccinated, but people in Northeast Ohio are. Yeah. Lake, Cuyahoga, and Medina counties have the highest COVID-19 vaccination rates among the Northeast Ohio counties, according to the Health Ohio Health Department. So overall, 54.4% of Ohioans of all ages have started the process of, you know, they've gotten at least one shot. And 63.6% of those ages 12 and up have received at least one shot. So here's how it shakes out by the numbers. In Lake County, the vaccination rate is 60.8. Cuyahoga County is trailing just a smidge, 59.4%. And Medina County is at 592 Among the 10 most populous counties, Cuyahoga County is leading with Franklin County just a little bit behind us with 58.8%. I am really looking forward to seeing all these percentages skyrocket as soon as kids under 12 are approved for the vaccine. (laughs) Everyone keeps telling me their kid is going to be first in line. So I hope that that's true. And we're 
we're all scrambling to get our kids vaccinated. Well, the vaccine's ready. They're ready to ship it out the minute it's, minute it's approved. I'll be interested to see if the state starts tracking the percentage of people that get the booster shot. It's, it's not as important, I think, in the state's purview as just getting people vaccinated. Because once you're vaccinated, if you get the coronavirus, you're very unlikely to die or need a ventilator. But I'd just be interested to see how eager people are to get that booster shot. Um, I know from just anecdotal evidence that there there's a steady stream of people going into corner pharmacies to get it. Uh, and it, what, it'll be interesting to see what the county by county numbers look like if they become available. We should ask the state about that. Mara Johnston, I think uh, we'll have to get a reporter working on that today. Got it. You're listening <laughs> to This Week in the CLE. All right. Tomorrow, we'll have Seth Richardson on to talk a little bit more about the mayoral debate. He was there for it and to kind of give us an update on where things stand in that race and whether there is, in fact, a path for Kevin Kelly, um, as slim as it might seem. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. Come on back tomorrow for another discussion of the news. 